Hello and welcome to Horsehair Wigs from Irish Rule of Law International. My name is Evelyn McCafferty and coming up on this month's show. You might get an education but at the end of the day you're a Catholic. We'll be speaking to international judge Teresa Doherty who talks about the discrimination she faced growing up as a girl and a Catholic in Northern Ireland. I still get annoyed to this day with people who have a feeling that they are superior to others. Judge Doherty did legal aid clinics in West Belfast during some of the worst years of the Troubles. The clinics were held in Catholic primary schools for young children. And it just made me so aware of the impact of fighting on young minds. Justice Doherty also spent 22 years in Papua New Guinea working as a magistrate and judge and again talks about the discrimination she faced there. And the notice saying no women may enter these premises wearing trousers or shorts. But Justice Doherty has always stood up for what she believes in and later in Sierra Leone when working there after the Civil War she made landmark international rulings related to child soldiers and women's rights and uncovered a huge adoption scandal. I said well I'm thinking of citing the Minister for Contempt of Court. He nearly had a fit. <laughs> I'm really delighted to have Justice Doherty with us on the show this month, who started her chat by telling me about her upbringing in Port Stewart in Northern Ireland, a background that has heavily shaped her impact in the field of international criminal justice. My father, God rest him, always encouraged us and my mother was he acknowledged that she was the more intelligent. Neither of them had a chance of an education. They always insisted on us having an education. It was my mother's older sister that always said there was no point in educating girls because they were only going to get married. It was a waste of money. And it was my father that actually insisted that the girls would get the same chance as the sons. And uh, his great saying was, education is easy carried. I suppose that's an old Irish saying, but it really made me realise more and more as I travelled that education was so fundamental. The realisation both that you could do it and that you had a chance. But my father, as you may have heard me say, said, you might get an education, but at the end of the day you're a Catholic. And the only thing Catholics can do women can do is either be teachers or nurses. So how I ended up as the first Northern Ireland woman to be appointed a judge, I, big a mystery to him as it is to me. Do you think, though, that made you even more determined to pursue what you wanted? I wanted to be a doctor. You wanted to be a doctor. but Your mother you, laughed at me all the time. And your mum's family were very against this, yes. from what I understand. Yes. So how did it all unravel then that, you know, you weren't going to do medicine, you were actually going to do law? Well, I was working for four years in London. It was the time of, you know, the notices saying no Irish, no blacks. So the discrimination you get in one place was carried on to a greater number of people in another and that what came across as a feeling of innate superiority on the part of London and those people annoyed me intensely. And I still get annoyed to this day with people who have a feeling that they are superior to others, because we're not. And uh, I went to Zambia to be a volunteer just because I felt it was time to give something back it was to be for a short time and it was there that I went out to the prison 
originally to the women's side of the prison a church organisation. And whilst there, a member of a family I knew asked if, through a warden if I would come and speak to him. And he asked for toothpaste. And it made me very much aware of how little you have in choice and ability to get things for yourself, to make your own decisions when you are in prison and how restricted life would be. And that prompted part of my interest. Before we talk about your work in the prisons then, which probably start, which probably sparked your interest in, yeah. in, in law, can you tell me about the conditions in which you grew up in in Northern Ireland? what you would have experienced? I was the eldest, there was five of us. My father had to work very hard. He didn't grumble in front of us, but I could always hear him as the eldest grumbling to my mother because he had to work hard and he was on his feet all day. He was a foreman shirt cutter in charge of the factory with a lot of people in it. So he was responsible for the output, the correct cutting of the garments and supervising all of the women because it was exclusively women machinists that worked in those places and uh, one occasion I always remember he brought back one night a gross 144 shirts where the collars had been put on wrong and my mother and I sat up all night on picking the collars so that they could be put back on correctly. So that was the type of thing that we did. He wasn't well paid. I remember hearing him say he had asked for a rise and the factory owner had said to him, well, why don't you go and work for a Catholic if you want more, knowing very well there weren't any Catholics employing people. Because he wasn't well paid, we let our house every summer. So we vacated our home. I would take the younger members of the family to Donegal, to my mother's old home, until a few years when I was a little bit older and I was working in the summer as well. And then we would all stay often in a couple of rooms and the house was vacated during July and August and they always joked that that paid for the rates. So, yes, as the eldest, I was very conscious of the financial restraints on the family. And it made me aware of financial restraints in other families, in places I've worked, and an awareness of how difficult it can be to raise youngsters and give them a good education. And also to have that priority, the education, yes. you know, especially at a time when... Your, yes. your mum and dad may not have had that same opportunity. That's actually. correct. And, you know, as you said, your dad prioritised to quite mm. a degree. Um, and so did my mother. And your mum. Mm. She was much more maybe organised. It was typical of many Irish families. My father would just hand over the pay packet and she scraped and saved and extended it so that they had a home that they were paying off. And I think when, as I worked in other countries, they didn't really believe that we had second-hand clothes. And they certainly didn't believe that we carried water because in my mother's, in Shrove at that time, there was no pipe water. We had to go up to what was called the spout for mm. drinking water. In Donegal. In Donegal. Yeah. 
Back then at the time, as you said, you did some work with an NGO and you did some volunteer work in the mm-hmm. prisons. It's then that, that sparked your your interest in potentially thinking about law. I had done some work in the company's house in London. I started studying to become a chartered secretary and there was a certain amount of law involved in it. But the prison extended that and also the realisation that I wasn't too old to go to university. And how old were you then? I was 24 when I went to university. So you went to Queen's University in Belfast. Yes, And you were studying in Queen's during some of the worst years of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And you were doing legal aid clinics. That's correct. In West Belfast. Yes. And you you knew John Hume. Yes. A hugely influential figure in ushering Northern Ireland to the place of police. Later winning the Nobel Peace Prize. That's right. Tell us about that time then. It was a difficult time because... There were, for the first time that we were aware of it, there were quite a few girls studying law. At that point, it was 25% of the intake. I was always interested in civil rights. That came from that heritage almost, the background. There was a, he was actually an English social science tutor who was one of the organisers of the law students going out to the Turf Lodge and Ballymurphy on the legal aid clinics because at the time there was also the protests. There was a lot of soldiers going in and I remember one woman in particular came in and she was quite calm. She was a mother of 12 And she said the soldiers had come in looking for one of her children, her sons, and they destroyed the inside of the house. It was very, very difficult to listen to because there was so little we could do. The forces were there. It was that Christmas at uh, Turf Lodge. The legal aid clinic was in the primary school and all the nativity scenes done by these young, very young pupils with Mary, Joseph and the baby and the odd cow, but every single one had a soldier in it and more had helicopters than angels. And it just made me so aware of the impact of fighting on young minds. Mm, And conflict in that daily presence, actually. This is something being absorbed by children seeing those scenes and I imagine they were probably what around four or five yes yeah I saw it later in Sierra Leone during the civil war there at the end of the civil war I should say because the civil war was over when I Mm. went out I uh, saw the youngsters playing and they would be crawling like soldiers on their stomachs on their elbows And that's the way they were playing. So you kind of drew parallels between your time when you were in Northern Ireland in West Belfast, seeing what you saw then, that becoming very apparent to you then that that was as a result Mm -hmm. of there being a a British presence, military presence, Mm -hmm. and also quite a lot of trouble, violence in Northern Mm -hmm. Ireland at the time. And then seeing that also in Sierra Leone, which I I really want to talk to you about as well a little bit later. But before that, I I wanted to talk to you about your time in Papua New Guinea, which came about 
after you had done some study here in Belfast, as you said, you were very involved in the the civil rights movement yes, here, I was. which was probably very exciting, given that civil rights movements internationally at the time were were also you were also open. There was, there was far more talk, far more exposure of the concept of oppression and so on that had not been before. And one of the things that was apparent in the Northern Ireland movements was the role of women, the role of the families that were left behind. One day in August, a lot of men were lifted and interned without trial. Internment, imprisonment without trial, that happened overnight here. There was a complete sweep of males, particularly West Belfast Derry and other nationalist areas. The women were left, obviously, holding families together, but also prior to that, if the men were on the run, it was the women that were looking after families. And it was the women on both sides that said, got to be a stop to this. But a deputation of women leaders went to Margaret Thatcher and wanted to negotiate peace, and she didn't entertain them. And I think that was a fundamental political mistake, both for peace and for the status of women in Northern Ireland. When you did your study in Belfast and finished with the legal aid clinics, I believe that you went to the UK. That's because Um, I got married. Yes, Ian is your husband Mm -hmm. and um, he's featured quite heavily in your story because... (laughs) Correct. You met Ian. Yes, on an aeroplane. On an aeroplane coming back from your NGO trip to Zambia. Yes. Working in prisons. Yes. And um, you decided to get married to Ian. Well, we met up again about a year and a half later but when we met again it was pretty quick and he then this is after your time in in Belfast and Queen's University he was offered a job to go to Papua New Guinea correct and you both went and stayed for 22 years and not only that it's where you became the first woman judge in the entire Pacific region correct how did all of that unravel it was quite strange some of it was almost by chance I wanted obviously, to keep working. I had almost finished my apprenticeship, as they call it now, articles, as we called it then, to be a full lawyer. I wasn't admitted in Papua New Guinea immediately. I had to go down to, because uh, the person in charge of the law society there decided that my qualifications didn't count, so I went down to New South Wales, got admitted there because there was a reciprocal recognition between Northern Ireland and New South Wales, was admitted there, got back on the plane, and because there was a reciprocal between New South Wales and Papua New Guinea, I I was automatically admitted in Papua New Guinea. In Papua New Guinea at the time, which is very interesting to me when we first spoke, you were telling me about the fact that you had worked in mitigating environmental impacts yes and what was your involvement because I'm really interested in in now you know with all of the talk about um, ecocide and environmental Mm. justice what were your takeaways then that level of scrambling for natural resources and indeed then what we're seeing today is the total exploitation it was at the time and to take one small example there was an island called uh, Siasi Islands off, off the coast of Moraby, the province that I was working in. I was the legal officer for that province. And that was a chance appointment. 
And Papua New Guinea at that time had environmental protection laws and they were not being adhered to. Corruption was creeping in. The laws said that when the trees were cut, logging was done, they had to be planting to replace the trees that were being cut. And some of those trees were very valuable, mahoganies and so on. But a lot of the leaders, unfortunately, were looking at short-term gain. And Siasi was one of the classics because the environmental impact studies showed that if the trees were cut, then the runoff would result in what was called red tide. And red tide was detrimental to coral and to fish. And even in that area, Siasi, the expression for have you eaten was, did you have fish today? And it was their staple. It was their staple. And the leader said, oh, we'll plant cocoa trees. And I thought, they'll never plant cocoa trees. And it has had an impact. But I have to say, even though I was advocating against it as a legal advisor for the provincial government and for that area, it was falling on deaf ears. People were looking for the immediate monetary return. I saw it in Sierra Leone as well. The short-term gain, it really did bother me a lot. And the women were aware of it in many ways because they were the main, it was called gardening, you know, they were the main agricultural people and they were aware of the runoff that the heavy rains could bring after deforestation. And they were aware of that their fertility because the traditional rotation system wasn't being adhered to, but they weren't listened. But also one of the big problems that led eventually to the civil war in Bougainville was a failure to recognise the traditional heritage system that was practiced, that was a matrilineal society, not a patrilineal society. So the rights to Just to give some background here about Bougainville, it's an island and it's part of Papua New Guinea. It's one of the biggest mining regions of the world. Disputes over mine profits and its environmental damage led to a decade-long civil war between 1988 and 1998. Difficulties that contributed to the conflict included an Australian company coming in with the discovery of copper deposits and making financial deals with various landowners, but excluding women despite their position as traditional custodians of the land under the island's matrilineal system. And income from land passed from the mother's line to her nephews rather than from father to son. And because the men had signed the agreements and were getting the royalties, it was not going down the female line in accordance with tradition. It was going down a patrilineal line And the protests started for the generation that would have inherited through the matrilineal line. They weren't getting royalties. Then the degradation that the mining had caused came in 
as a secondary. And always there had been tensions between Bougainville and the mainland because it was so far apart from the mainland and because it saw itself as a main financial contributor to the country as a whole and that they weren't getting their entitlement. So all of those things together brought about the tension and again they asked for independence to be away from the Papua New Guinea and it was hours, it was many hours difference, time zones between Bougainville and say Port Moresby, the capital and that was one of their problems it was getting dark there at say four o'clock in the afternoon when it wasn't getting dark until nearly six in the other parts of these small practical things all came together what was it like for you then to be able to sort of penetrate that community? Because I was the only female lawyer and then the only female provincial magistrate before I was a judge. And because I continued to do legal aid things for women prisoners, for women in problems. And I had the rumour to have these uh, special powers, as they called it, which of course was rubbish. I just did my research before I went into court. Because you had that reputation, the women would turn to me before they would turn to some of the men. So I heard a lot more. I was much more aware of their situation. And coming from a society that also had discriminated against women, I knew what they were feeling. And there was a helplessness plus a determination to make things better for themselves. I can always remember one girl coming in and saying, it's different from you white people, men don't beat you. And I said, you know, sorry, everywhere, Mm. domestic violence. It's not just, as she thought, among non-whites. You're listening to Horsehair Wigs with me, Evelyn McCafferty. Today we're talking to Irish judge Teresa Doherty. Judge Doherty became the first female judge in Northern Ireland and in the entire Pacific region, and she's been recognised internationally for her work on human and women's rights. A short note about this podcast, it's funded by Irish Aid and is brought to you by Irish Rule of Law International, IRLI. IRLI is an NGO which uses the rule of law to tackle global injustice and is supported by members of both branches of the legal profession throughout the island of Ireland. You can find more about its work on its website, irishruleoflaw.ie. Back now to today's episode with Judge Teresa Doherty, picking up as she continues to talk about her work in Papua New Guinea. I, I spoke fluent pidgin. And that gave me... Which is the, 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 the language. Yes. Yeah. Put me in a position where I could communicate much better than some other people, expatriates, who were in positions of authority. I also did a lot of walking. So I knew the villages. I knew the locations. And I was accepted because I did the legal aid and they would turn to me. It would come round to my house at all hours of the day and night. This is the first real awareness I had of maladministration leading to abusive of rights. Very late at night, a group came round. Um, a woman had been arrested, charged, and was in the police cells with a very sick baby. They had paid her bail, but the police wouldn't release her. Could I do something about it? 
So we got up. Ian drove me into the police station because it was very late at night. There's no lights and it's dirt roads and it was, you know, it was very dirty. And I could hear the baby screaming. I'll never forget that child's screams. And when I got into the police station, they had allowed her out of the cells and she was sitting there with the stoic expression that I was to see time and time and time again on the face of Papua New Guinean women. And the child was obviously extremely ill. So I said to the duty officer, what has happened? And he said she was charged with assault. She had hit the girlfriend of her partner, the baby's father. That was the most common cause of women being arrested. And I asked if she'd been charged. Yes, she was charged. Was she allowed bail? Yes, she was allowed bail. Did they pay the bail? Yes, they paid the bail. Well, why is she still here? We've run out of bail forms. So I sat down and wrote out a bail form. By sheer luck, I had brought my bail act. I said to him, sign it. And he signed it, stamped it. And we got the baby down to the hospital. It survived. But it was my first real example of the fact that that society had been trained in a particular way. Routine sequence of procedure that had to be followed. And if one of those procedures wasn't available or there was a, some reason why it couldn't be implemented, then you couldn't go on to the, the next bit. And I found that so many times. Another example is, this time I was a judge, I used to go down, sometimes on the spur of the moment, and do a cell inspection. So I went down in the cells, and uh, the prisoners were, there was about six or seven prisoners, all males being held in the police cells. And uh, one of them knew me, he was a bit of a regular, and he said, Judge, we haven't eaten for two days. And I thought, you yeah, chancers. And, but I went up and asked, and I said, the prisoners said they haven't eaten for two days. Oh, yes, yes, that's right, yes. And I said, well, why haven't they eaten for two days? Well, we don't get rations till the first Monday in the month and the food's all finished. This is something similar as well to IRLI have a programme in Malawi with prisoners. People can be in prison for multiple, multiple years without ever being in a court, which include children, unfortunately. Yes. And if you don't have family, say, for instance, a lot of street children, this is the reason why they end up in, in prison, because they're just on the street and they're they're taken in. And so obviously then they need to eat. And so they exchange sexual favours with some of the older men. So this is a reality, actually. It is. It's not unique. One of the things that I wouldn't say I pride myself on, but I look back on and think you don't know how you touch other people's lives, really. Uh, I was at a judges meeting with other Pacific, Asian Pacific judges and the then Chief Justice of India said to me, oh, Justice Doherty, I heard about your system of prison inspections and I decided I would go out and do the same in my area. So I went out to the prison and one of the first people I came across was a man being held in remand and he'd been there for 10 years, never in a court, on a charge that carried a maximum of five years. It's, it's those basic, basic things that I keep trying to press on. I always did say 
coming from Northern Ireland, that a little learning and a uniform are a very dangerous combination. Mm. You see, you had experienced that level of kind of discrimination and marginalisation mm. here. Yeah, that's right. And so you could probably then see it elsewhere very, yes. very clearly. Yes. Probably surprised as well, right? You oh, know, to a degree, you yes. know, because it sounds like a real steep learning curve. It was. Oh, it was. This whole Papua New Guinea yes. experience. And also quite solo. Oh, yes. I was the only one doing it. After 22 years of being in Papua New Guinea, you decided to come back to Northern Ireland, back to the bar, and you also became a parole commissioner. I did. So continuing your your good work working in prisons. Yes. But you were contacted by the Commonwealth. That's correct. Who said, will you come to Sierra Leone? Yes. So this is at a time when the civil war was ending. It had lasted 11 years. Mm -hmm. 50,000 people had been killed. Mm -hmm. So the country was transitioning to a post-conflict country. Much corruption at the time. Oh, that was a myth. Yes. Uh, So I went out. I remembered Northern Ireland and the peace process here and the involvement in women. And by coincidence, the person in involved in demilitarization, DDR as it was called, demilitarization, reintegration, was ex-Irish army. And he said to me once, what could we have done better? What did we do wrong? We didn't involve the women. We didn't involve them enough. It was the same in Bougainville. If you are wanting to get a peace and a reconciliation It has to go down to the family level because in a civil war, it's family fighting family. And the people that are the main implementers at the end of the day are often the women. So Sierra Leone, and I always remember the first day going into the court and the notice saying no women may enter these premises wearing trousers or shorts. Mind you, I shouldn't have been surprised because they weren't supposed to wear them in the Northern Ireland courts either. But I thought, well, I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to see about this. But I went out to the prison there too, and that's where I discovered people that were being held without trial, without a warrant, without even a scrap of paper to show why they were there. So. Um, trying to get a better system going. And if there's no respect for the court system, there's no respect for the legal system. And that's where things deteriorate. The legal system was quite corrupt there, not just to do with the rights of prisoners, but also there were multiple other things happening. Can you describe I didn't that? even know that. I, I admit that when I was asked to go, it was my understanding or my interpretation that it was to try and get the courts back into working order after the Civil War. And it was actually the Chief Justice who said, quite off the cuff and candidly, well, Sierra Leone has a reputation of having the most corrupt judiciary. And it was a shock to me to hear that said. And it never occurred to me in my naivety that judges would be appointed to uphold the law and then be corrupt themselves. I, I, just couldn't, I just couldn't get that into my head. But that's what I was told. And as I started observing, I could see. When we spoke before, you were talking to me about quite a lot of corruption happening when it came to children. Correct. How did you become aware of that problem? Among the things that I was asked to do was to do with adoptions. 
the first case that came before me, I looked at the papers, and to say I was horrified would be a bit of an understatement. I couldn't work out whether the children were either male or female because the names were traditional names that I didn't know at that time. The so-called signature of whoever it was that was agreeing to it and the relationship with the children wasn't clear. It didn't say it was a father or a mother. It said something about them being war orphans. It was suspiciously the same signature with two different names and all sorts of other anomalies, including the fact that there was nothing to show anything about the prospective family that they were going to in America. They were going to America. And I refused the adoption because they just didn't conform. Then some others came in and again I refused them. And I was very concerned that the American embassy might not be aware. I remember one set of papers that came in, the name of the prospective adoptive family in America. The name was spelled differently on different parts of the papers. And that made me very suspicious. And there was no medical reports, there was no police reports, there was none of the type... I couldn't even work out if there was other siblings in America, prospective siblings in America. So I was refusing these instructors. I wrote out a judgment explaining why I was refusing it. And I said to my clerk, could you arrange to have the usual letter written to the American embassy and say, judge has issued this judgment and should be brought to your attention. And a few days later I said, uh, did that letter go? Do you know that judgment go over to the embassy? No. Um, they, um, and there was all sort of muttering. I then said, she said, oh, it's gone to the registrar. So I went and spoke to the registrar and the registrar hadn't sent it either. And I thought, what's going on here? This is a quite a standard procedure, for, for example, if you have a coroner's court and the coroner identifies a bad road accident, the coroner will have that information sent to the appropriate authority. So I wasn't doing anything. It was a public document. So I wrote the thing myself, walked across to the embassy, handed it in. And before I knew what was happening, there was the first thing that I got was a letter from the Minister of for Children, uh, for Women and Families, Sierra Leone Minister. And it was a page and a half letter saying, basically, that Judge Doherty might think she's doing the right thing, but I've decided that these children will go to America. And the ministers in the Sierra Leone system are not elected they're appointed by the president. And I said, you know, this is outrageous. This is interference with the judicial system. This is contempt. We've got to take a stand on this. But it didn't quite work. Before I knew where I was, I was called in. There was an attempt by the chief justice to persuade me that this was incorrect procedure on my part. I said, well, I'm thinking of citing the minister for contempt of court. He nearly had a fit. And uh, one thing led to another, and it was coming out of church one Sunday. A lady I, I was very friendly with, Sarah Leonian lady, said to me, Tracy, I'm really sorry to hear that you're being reported to the president. I had no idea. That's the first steps to being removed. 
and it was over this adoption. And the Americans then decided to have a, an inquiry. Did you know the extent of the situation at that point? Not entirely. You, you just had suspicions that there was I something had wrong. Yes. These so-called war orphans. And what really alerted me to it was one of the American families complained, prospective adopters. They'd been waiting for and paying for these so-called war orphans to be maintained in an orphanage at an exorbitant amount of money every week for maybe two or three years on the basis that the legal procedure was taking so long. Whereas, in fact, it was just being rubber stamped. So the war orphans were, there were no war orphans? No, it turned out that families in particularly rural areas were being told their children would be taken to America for education for two or three years. And then they'd come back and they would be asked to sign forms and again on a, people that couldn't read and write, given documents in a language they didn't understand, being asked to sign it, believing what they were told, suddenly find that their children were taken away and we're never going to see them again. So there were actually some children who were sent to the US to, to Oh, families. yes. Okay. Quite, uh, quite a few. Without the knowledge of... Without the parents. Without ra- the, uh, the family knowing. Uh, yeah. The family agreed that they should go for an education but they didn't realize that that this was like a an adoption this was an adoption and it was final the americans did an investigation there was protests then as it became apparent i had left the sierra leone judiciary but it was known and um, some of them were genuine people genuine adopters people that were sincere but there was also traffic and a lot of money that was staring at hand. Yeah. And I thought it, and, and not only that, but children were being brought in from Liberia and other countries to go through the system in Sierra Leone because it was so bad. And I had interfered with a very lucrative trade. That was one incident that put me in a loggerheads with the Chief Justice as he was then. The other was to do with the prison. I went out to the prison in Freetown on the same basis that there should be a judicial inspection once a month. I was treated very politely by the governor, and I've always been treated politely by governors that I went into prisons, even though I turned up without any notice. And I asked, you know, when did you last have a judicial inspection by a judge? And he said, I've been in this prison over 20 years and you're the first I've seen. And I, that is when I started finding the people without trial, without the long waiting lists, the complainants on death row that were waiting for their decisions on their appeals, Some, one of them for 10 years. And I was very, very concerned. But the Chief Justice was obviously annoyed. He said, you... You, Judge Doherty, you're not to go to that prison again without my permission. And I thought, just you watch me, like the trousers. And I said, the other thing about the prison is things are so bad in there, it's going to blow. And I said, I'm no longer prepared to be a member of a judiciary that abuses human rights 
I am going to resign, and I wrote out my statement. There was a riot at the prison. I said three weeks. It happened in less. And in the end, it was the Chief Justice that was removed. I'm very curious as to how then, after well, it was after some time that you were in Sierra Leone that you were asked by the United Nations to become a judge at the Special Court for Sierra Leone. That's correct. Which had authority to prosecute those who bore the greatest responsibility for crimes against humanity, war crimes and violations of Sierra Leonean law committed in the country. Yes. From November um, 1996. You were involved in, in landmark rulings there. Yeah, really. I was. You yes. know, uh, rulings related to child slavery. Child um, soldiers. Child soldiers, sexual slavery, forced yes. forced marriage. Yeah, those were my judgments. And the first ruling against a sitting head of state, Charles Taylor, who Judge Fisher, one of our earlier um, podcast interviews, has talked about. As you said, they're your judgments, hugely sub- substantial opinions related to international criminal law. And bringing together not just your professional experience throughout the years, but also your, your personal experiences. And this, this again, personal experience of, of discrimination and marginalisation, certainly yes. when it came to, to being a woman. Can you talk about all of that? I mean, a huge amount of work. Oh, it was phenomenal. I used to get up early in the morning to walk. I did it in Papua New Guinea and I did it in Sierra Leone just to get my head shired, as they say in Northern Ireland. Get it clear to think because the things we were hearing, I wouldn't repeat. There were some of them were so horrific. You know, Northern Ireland had its troubles and they were, they were terrible. But when I heard the things they did to each other in places like Sierra Leone and in Bougainville, the amount of rape, of gang rape, of destructions in villages, of abduction of children and drugging them and sending them back to kill their own relatives so they would be totally alienated from their own communities. These were vicious, terrible things to do. I was also very conscious of how badly treated the women were. They had little powers traditionally, but when they were abducted by the rebels, they had even less. The reason that we had the difference sexual crimes, of forced marriage, of sexual slavery, of rape, all related to how the women were treated when they were abducted whether they were exclusive to one rebel, whether they were available to all of them, and how they were treated. Because not only did it have an impact as they were suffering, but it had a long-term impact because they frequently were not allowed back into their own communities. A lot of the boys were, but the girls weren't. And that was a longer-term suffering. And some of the things you heard were a shock, not just the physical suffering, but the attitudes. And I remember particularly one girl, she described being gang raped as the people came into her home and took her and her cousin's sister and raped them. And she said, and my sister said, if they capture you, they have a right to do it. 
and it was use of the word right that I found so striking. It was as though they were almost reconciled to a fate, a terrible fate. And listening to what the child soldiers, what happened to them, and I remembered those nativity scenes in Belfast. And listening to all the things they did, I realised it wasn't just fighting. The rebels and all of those organisations were dependent on the children for supplies, for finding routes, for spying on villages, for guarding the mines. So when we came to write the definition of use of children as in conflict, all of those things were important. It wasn't just fighting. And I think I do take a bit of personal, I wouldn't say pride, but the fact that the International Criminal Court adopted that definition without any change was a recognition internationally. And on that note, thank you, Judge Doherty. Really, really delighted that we could sit down today and thanks for your time. You're very, very welcome. And that was International Judge Teresa Doherty talking to me at her home in Northern Ireland about the impact she's made in the field of international criminal justice. That's it for this month's show. Thanks to you all for listening and thanks too to Irish Aid for funding this podcast. Until next time, from me, Evelyn McCafferty and Irish Rule of Law International, take good care. Listener.